Welcome back to the Multipod. It's been a while, and for starters, thank you to everyone who's listening today who has still discovered our show and even gone through some of the back catalog. As you may know, this show dates back to the very beginning of January 2018 when a few of us putty peep got together and said, there is so much to talk about here and in this wonderful community, so many fascinating people to meet who have stories and inspiration to share. We need a podcast. Hence, myself, Ted, along with Sandrine Gressard and Mike Mulsey, we started laying out the plans for the show and recording those first few episodes under the guidance of the inimitable Joel Zaslavsky. We were soon joined by Sarah Oliver and Vanessa Reich Shackelford, along with uh, various guest hosts and contributors over the many months. We have indeed met some tremendous people from all over the world, people who have found their way to this positive and diverse community. We have covered putty events and even sent our own correspondent, Doug Walker, he was going anyway, to the Everything Conference in September of 2019 to give all of us who couldn't be there a taste for what it was like. It's been two and a half years, a good chunk of time for any multipotentialite, and enough time to really measure our commitment to producing this thing. We set out to publish an episode every two weeks on average, and aside from some summer lulls the past two years, we've succeeded. But uh, whenever we come back from a summer break, it's a chance to think about where to go from here. Should we keep going? Does our show provide some value and entertainment for the community? We are certainly motivated by the idea of providing a different platform, a more multimedia experience, to being part of the Puttyverse. Audio is a wonderful medium where you can really immerse yourself in the quality of a story or conversation and gain a fuller understanding of the people involved simply by listening to the sound and style of their voice. But how can we find a balance between providing something interesting, entertaining, and even interactive that is also sustainable and not too demanding to put together? Meanwhile, the putty world is going through some big changes. It's the 10-year anniversary of the launch of Putty Like, the blog, something we would like to cover over the next few episodes to try and trace its evolution and impact after a whole decade. And of course, we're getting a new name. Welcome to the Puttyverse. I've also shared in the uneasiness over the tribe nickname. It always seemed a little too internet guru gimmicky. But, I mean, mostly it provoked negative associations, especially here in North America. Frankly, it reminded me too much of the Cleveland baseball team, who are still stubbornly in the Stone Age about clinging to their offensive moniker. So I greatly respect Emily for making the change and being assertive about it. And I've done my best to drop the new name in already. I really like it, but it takes some getting used to. All in all, it seems to be an apt time to take a good assessment of this show, its future, and our commitment to it. And we are very fortunate to be aided in this by the addition of our new production team member, Florian Stümer, who, like many, first came to the show as a guest in June of 2020 and quickly took an interest in helping put together our content and keeping things going. Flo came up with the idea of presenting little biographies of historical multi-potentialite figures some of whom you would likely know, others much more obscure. And then we, we then draw a parallel from them to the members of our community in our Putty Peep of the Week profiles. We also want to start reaching out beyond the bounds of the Puttyverse and gain some perspectives from outside the group. These may be experts or folks otherwise already aware of the concept of multipotentiality in some shape or form. Or it could be people brand new to the concept, perhaps partners or friends of Puttyverse members who can reflect on their observations and understanding of it. 
We'd like to try maintaining some ongoing series that float in and out of episodes, such as profiling the projects of various putty peep, or sharing some short tidbits and, and factoids, like things the world can learn from multipotentialites, or favorite puttyverse memories. And of course, most of all, we will continue exploring the lives and stories of our putty peep through our ongoing conversations. It is the best part of doing this show and a real joy. I encourage you to go back through our history of episodes to get to know some familiar names and to hear their voices. And don't be surprised if you get a message one day from one of us asking if we can share something of yours with the community and or chat with you on the podcast. We would love to get to know you. So with all this in mind, we are calling it The Multipod 2.0 and are looking forward to a good, solid dose of energy and enthusiasm. It's nice to be back, and I want to give a special shout-out to Heather UK, who always goes out of her way to highlight our latest episodes in the weekly email newsletter. Thanks very much, Heather. We appreciate it. So we kick off our show today with a couple historical multipotentialite biographies, starting with Flo's exploration of John von Neumann, the Hungarian-American mathematician, physicist, computer scientist, engineer, and polymath. Von Neumann was generally regarded as the foremost mathematician of his time and said to be, quote, the last representative of the great mathematicians. Take it away, Flo. Jon von Neumann. Jon von Neumann was a polymath and pioneer of the application of operator theory to quantum mechanics in the development of functional analysis. Along with fellow physicists, Edward Teller and Stanislav Ulam, von Neumann worked out key steps in the nuclear physics involving thermonuclear reactions and the hydrogen bomb. Von Neumann wrote 150 published papers in his life, 60 in pure mathematics, 20 in physics and 60 in applied mathematics. His last work, published in 1958, The Computer and the Brain, explores the analogies between computing machines and the living human brain. Jon von Neumann was born on December 28, 1903. He was an Hungarian-American mathematician who made major contributions to the vast range of fields. The eldest of three brothers, von Neumann was born Neumann Janos Lajos. Von Neumann's ancestors had originally immigrated to Hungary from Russia. Jon was a child prodigy who showed an aptitude for languages, memorization and mathematics. By the age of six, he could exchange jokes in classical Greek, memorize telephone directories and displayed prodigious mental calculation abilities. He initially studied chemistry and mathematics at the University of Berlin until 1923, when he went to Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, where he received a degree in chemical engineering in 1926. The following year, he received his doctorate in mathematics from Basmani Peter University in Budapest at the age of just 22 with a thesis concerning axiomatization of Cantor's set theory. From 1926 to 1927, von Neumann did postdoctoral studies under David Hilbert at the University of Göttingen. Neumann worked at German universities until 1930, concentrating on quantum mechanics. Jon von Neumann married twice. He married Mariette Kövesi in 1930, just before emigrating to the United States. They had one daughter. 
He then divorced her in 1937 and married Clarie Dunn in 1938. In 1933, he became a mathematics professor at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, and he kept his position until his death. In 1937, von Neumann became a naturalized citizen of the U.S. after migrating to America with his mother and brothers. In 1938, von Neumann was awarded the Borsche Memorial Prize for his work in analysis. During the Second World War, he worked on the Manhattan Project to produce the first atomic bomb. Following the war, Neumann became a consultant to the American government and industry in addition to his professions at Princeton. He was really quick in mental math. The following problem can be solved the easy way or the hard way. Two trains 200 miles apart are moving toward each other. Each one is going at a speed of 50 miles per hour. A fly starting on the front of one of the trains flies back and forth between them at a rate of 75 miles per hour. It does this until the trains collide and crush the fly to death. What is the total distance the fly has flown? In a strict mathematical sense, the fly actually hits each train an infinite number of times before it gets crushed. And one could solve the problem the hard way with pencil and paper by summing an infinite series of distances. This is the way the most trained mathematicians will solve the problem. Conversely, a mathematical novice will most likely solve the problem the easy way. Since the trains are 200 miles apart and each train is going 50 miles an hour, it takes two hours for the trains to collide. Therefore, the fly was flying for two hours at a rate of 75 miles per hour, and so the fly must have flown 150 miles. Easy. When this problem was posed to Jun von Neumann, he immediately replied 150 miles. Ah, I see, you've heard this one before, Professor von Neumann. Nearly everyone tries to sum the infinite series. What do you mean? asked von Neumann. That's how I did it. He was funny. An MIT student concerned the famous professor in a hallway. The student said, uh, Excuse me, Professor von Neumann, could you please help me with a calculus problem? Jon von Neumann answered, Okay, Sonny, if it is real quick, I'm a busy man. The student said, I'm having trouble with this integral. Von Neumann, let's have a look. He took a brief pause, checked. All right, Sonny, the answer is 2 pi over 5. Student answered, I know that, sir. The answer's in the back. I'm having trouble deriving it, though. Von Neumann, okay, let me see it again. Another, he checked another one at a time. Yep, the answer's 2 pi over 5. The student then reacted quite frustrated. Uh, sir, I know the answer. I don't see how to derive it. Jon von Neumann said, uh, what do you want, Sonny? I worked it out in two different ways for you. Even his professor was afraid of him. So the mathematician George Bolia once recalled, Johnny was the only student I was really afraid of. If in the course of a lecture I stated an unsolved problem, the chances were he'd come up to me as soon as the lecture was over with the complete solution in a few scribbles on a slip of paper. He was strictly logical. The spectacular thing about Johnny was not his power as a mathematician, which was great, or his insight and his clarity, but his rapidity. He was very, very fast. 
Unlike the modern computer, which no longer bothers to retrieve the logarithm of 11 from its memory, um, but instead computes the logarithm of 11 each time it is needed, Johnny didn't bother to remember things. He computed them. You asked him a question, and if he didn't know the answer, he thought for three seconds and would produce the answer, said the mathematician Paul Helmosch. Therefore, unsurprisingly, Jon von Neumann was strictly logical in his thinking. One afternoon, his assistant, Paul Helmosch, dropped von Neumann off at home. Since there was to be a party there later, and since I didn't trust myself to remember exactly how I got there, Helmosch recalled, I asked how I'd be able to know his house when I came back came again. That's easy, he said. It's the one with the pigeon sitting by the curb. And he knew how to drop a bill. Henry Ford had ordered a dynamo for one of his plants. The dynamo didn't work, and not even the manufacturers could figure out why. A Ford employee told his boss that von Neumann was the smartest man in America. So Ford called von Neumann and asked him to come out and take a look at the dynamo. Von Neumann came, looked at the schematics, walked around the dynamo, then took out a pencil. He marked a line on the outside casing and said, if you'll go in and cut the coil here, the dynamo will work again. They cut the coil and the dynamo did work fine. Ford then told von Neumann to send him a bill for the work. Von Neumann sent Ford a bill for $5,000. Ford was astounded. 5000 was a lot in the 1950s and asked von Neumann for an intimate account. Here's what he submitted. Drawing a line with the pencil, $1. Knowing where to draw the line with the pencil, $4,999. Ford paid the bill. <laughs> Thanks, Flo. What a fascinating guy. So he was around in uh, the first half of the, ninth, uh, the 20th century. So 1903 he was born. When I looked this up, he was born in late December 1903. And he died in February of 1957, so he wasn't that old. So obviously I'm wondering, well, what happened? It says, in 1955, von Neumann was diagnosed with what was either bone, pancreatic, or prostate cancer, but the cancer was possibly caused by his radiation exposure during his time in Los Alamos National Laboratory, where, of course, they were developing atomic energy and the atomic bomb. So that's unfortunate and bitterly ironic, really, that um, that was likely what led to such an early death. He was only 53. And it says here on Wikipedia, he died at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington under military security, lest he reveal military secrets while heavily medicated. He's buried in Princeton Cemetery near the university, a famous cemetery actually known for uh, a few other well-known people, including Aaron Burr, if you've seen Hamilton, the, the musical, or I guess there's a movie now. He was the guy that shot Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr. Uh, Grover Cleveland, he was president of the United States. George Gallup of pollster fame. George Kennan, the famous uh, diplomat from the 20th century. Them and a whole number of other people buried at Princeton Cemetery, along with our first bio today of John von Neumann. Okay, now, who else do we have for you? Well, I have always been fascinated with the band Queen since I first discovered them. Like many Gen Xers, I guess, uh, <laughs> too young to have noticed Queen in their early 80s heyday. I was born in 1981, so I didn't really know who they were. It was Wayne's World where I first heard the music. I was 10 years old, and when the guys started playing and singing along to A Little Bohemian Rhapsody, gentlemen... 
I didn't know what on earth I was hearing, but I could tell that this song was a big deal, even though I was only 10. It seemed like something I should probably have known about already. Before long, I learned that Freddie Mercury, this amazing singer and performer, had just died, and I remember watching the tribute concert in April 1992, which was two months after Wayne's World came out. And then I got a copy of Classic Queen, the Blue Greatest Hits album, which had awesome liner notes explaining the history of the band and stories behind the hit songs. And I learned all about John Deacon, Roger Taylor, and Brian May, as well as, of course, Freddie. Now, every once in a while, I go on a Queen kick watching a documentary on YouTube or something or you know, learning a bit more about the band. This past summer, I finally watched the Bohemian Rhapsody movie and started going through their back catalog and listening to the actual albums instead of just the hits. The albums are good, they're very highly produced, and I know they considered themselves an album band, which I really admire. But you can certainly pick out the hits and tell why the famous songs stand out for a reason. Usually it's because of a memorable hook or a melody. Queen, the band, is a product of multi-potentialites. Freddie was a visual artist, a graphic designer with a diploma in art and design. He had a keen eye for fashion. He designed the logo, the very intricate logo for the band that kind of looks like a coat of arms. And of course, he was an accomplished musician. Not just vocals, but the piano as well, and some guitar. He was a true songwriter who understood musical composition and themes. John was an electrical engineer with a first-class honors degree in electronics from King's College in London. He built his own guitar amp and would often help the band modify their equipment. He first played guitar, then switched to bass, but also played the keyboards. John plays the electric piano part in You're My Best Friend, for example, which he also wrote, in addition to writing numerous other hit songs like Another One Bites the Dust, I Want to Break Free, and of course the bass line to Under Pressure. All that was done by John Deacon, the quote-unquote quiet guy. Roger initially studied to be a dentist at London Hospital Medical College, but then changed to biology and earned his Bachelor of Science at East London Polytechnic. He had learned guitar as a child, but discovered he was more comfortable on the drums instead. Roger is a songwriter, too. He wrote the hits Radio Gaga, These Are the Days of Our Lives, and A Kind of Magic. Brian May, though, I think he is the ultimate example of the multipod rocker. Brian earned an honors degree in physics from Imperial College London in 1968 when he was 21. Queen wasn't even formed until 1970. Like the others, Brian finished his undergraduate degree first before committing to a career in music. And this is back in the days when not a lot of people went to post-secondary uh, university and college. It wasn't such a common thing. All four of them did. He had always been a passionate musician, and you may know that his signature red guitar, which they dubbed the Red Special, was built by Brian and his father, who was an electronics engineer, when Brian was 16. The guitar is what gives Brian his unique style and sound. He's used it to mimic chimes, trombones, piccolos, and all kinds of other instruments. I remember reading in those liner notes from Classic Queen of how Queen made a point of writing, no synthesizers were used on this album, on their early albums, the ones from the mid-1970s. Otherwise, no one would believe it was all guitars and studio effects that they were listening to. Although Brian committed to music, he was keeping science as a backup plan. In Queen's early years, from 1970 to 74, he was still pursuing his Ph.D. studies on the side, where he researched reflected light from interplanetary dust and the velocity of dust in the plane of the solar system. Meanwhile, 
A Night at the Opera came out in 1975, and the band's career took off. You would think that that was that for Brian May, the scientist, but with Freddie's death in 1991 and the band largely going on hiatus, Brian would reapply to Imperial College in October 2006 to finish his Ph.D., the thesis of which he then submitted less than a year later in August of 2007. This is what they say on Wikipedia. His Ph.D. investigated radial velocity using absorption spectroscopy and Doppler spectroscopy of zodiacal light using a Fabry-Perot interferometer based at the Tiede Observatory in Tenerife. You get a sense of kind of the level of science that he's at here. He has authored two books on astronomy and continues to participate in astronomy and astrophysics-related presentations, documentaries, publications, in and amongst, of course, Queen's recent tours with Adam Lambert. Brian has also floated the idea of running for parliament in the UK. He's an activist for many environmental and animal rights causes, and he is an active collector, this is totally out of left field, of Victorian stereo photography, which is the art of 3D photography. He has published two books on stereoscopy and even invented a digital 3D stereo card viewer, which you can find on Amazon. I find that Queen's inherent multipotentiality is really reflected in their actual music as well, in that throughout their career they embraced a wide range of musical styles, they were able to apply them effectively to their songs with a deep understanding for structure and arrangement. Hence, when you listen to the operatic style sections of Bohemian Rhapsody, that's not just a caricature, but really it's a product of Freddie listening to and understanding operatic themes and constructs. He was a fan of opera throughout his life. John Deacon had a love for R&B and jazz, which you can hear on Another One Bites the Dust or the Hot Space album. They could pull off hard rock, prog rock, rockabilly, think about um, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, of course, ballads, dance tracks, and, but they do it all as if that was their natural style. I mean, what do you think of when you think of Queen's music? Are they hard rock? Are they pop, prog rock, funk? They could be any and all. Here's a quote from Rob Halford of Judas Priest, the band. He commented, It's rare that you struggle to label a band. If you're a heavy metal band, you're meant to look and sound like a heavy metal band. But you can't really call Queen anything. They could be a pop band one day, or the band that wrote Bicycle Race the next, and a full-blown metal band after that. In terms of the depth of the musical landscape that they covered, it was very similar, to some extent, to the Beatles. That's what Rob Halford says. Well, I would argue that the Beatles helped pioneer a multi-potential approach to popular music, and that's something we could certainly explore as well in the future. But uh, Queen took it to the next level. Their very ethos was to continually do different things, just for the sake of it, and to the best of their ability. I found it very profound to realize, I was watching a Queen documentary this summer on, on Amazon Prime, I think, how true it is that you very rarely hear anyone release a cover of a Queen song. I mean, between Freddie's vocal range, the whole sonic experience of Brian and the band, and the sheer ambition of their songs, it is very, very hard to do them justice. So Queen are one of a kind and a true beacon to multipotentialites everywhere. Now let's take a look at some of our own multipotentialites here in the Puttyverse. Dee Bardell is currently into coding, project management, mental health, and creative writing. She is in Minneapolis in Minnesota, but has done lots of travel around the United States. 
Dee has a fascinating profile. She is part mathematician, coder, part artist. Uh, she graduated from uh, University of Minnesota with bachelor of science degrees in mathematics and computer science. But, of course, she has her creative side too, mostly digital art and writing, things like short stories and uh, poetry. I really encourage you to go check out her personal website. It's a long address. The best thing is to go to Dee's profile on the Potty Tribe. We'll have a link to it here because it's hosted through the university. But it's kind of like an online portfolio and, you know, CV and stuff like that. But you really, really get a chance to learn about Dee, her background, her studies, her interests, and her personality. For instance, her dog, Pi, who has three legs, one eye, and four times the heart, i.e. 3.14, i.e. Pi. <laughs> now, I do want to mention this because it's both a big part of who she is, but at the same time, it's not all she is. Dee was born, which she says when she was born, her skull was fractured, and as a result, she has cerebral palsy. And as a true scientist, mathematician, she explains what that really means. In short, she says, my muscles receive extra signals from my brain, causing extra movement and lack of coordination, but not strength. My balance and speech are also affected, so she uses a power wheelchair for mobility. Talking on the phone is the most laborious method of communication, so she prefers text, um, email messaging, things like that. But even video or in-person conversation can um, be a bit easier. She has been a power soccer player since 2005, which is um, wheelchair soccer and powered wheelchairs. She says it's one of the only team sports for powered wheelchair users with physical disabilities, and it's highly competitive. You can see a couple of videos on her site. They're specialized chairs made for this game, for the soccer, which means they're, they're fast and they have a quick reaction time. And it's thanks to this she's been able to travel again around the United States. She has lots of friends all over the place through their connection through the sport and the technology, of course, that goes with it. It's really neat. So that's D. She's driven. She's not afraid of challenges. She learns quickly. She's not intimidated by criticism. She searches for creative solutions. And she's a multi-potentialite. Uh, she's got a really good uh, description for a multi-potentialite. She says, I have many interests and passions that vary greatly, and I use knowledge from seemingly unrelated fields to think about and solve problems, plus relate to individuals in any discipline. She says, I often discover new interests and dive into them deeply. I'm used to being a beginner and building skills quickly, but rarely starting from scratch due to my knowledge base. That's a great summary. So, Dee, welcome to the group. She is our first profile of the week. Next, we have Chris Crawford. Chris is currently into data science, learning German, and getting off the hamster wheel. Chris lives in Massachusetts. She has previously lived in Michigan and New Hampshire and the Grand Canyon, which she says she worked at when she was very young, was one of her past key experiences. Chris is a retired software engineer. She is a libertarian activist interested in philosophy, psychology. She has an undergraduate degree in math and physics and a master's degree in theological studies and economics. She's always been interested in languages, having spoken Spanish at home uh, growing up. She has extended family in Mexico, but, uh, of course, she wants to learn German, also Russian, and she says a few other languages, too. And then there's the artistic side, things like quilting, sewing, drawing, oil painting, origami, crochet, and community theater. Now, Chris, it says one of your other interests right now is ranked choice voting. Well, this is right up my alley. I work for the same thing here in Canada, 
trying to get at least uh, proportional representation, but the same basic principle of changing the ballot so that it's not just where you mark an X or a circle and you have to choose one or the other, but you can rank the candidates in an election. So instead of just choosing one, you basically rank one, two, three, four, however many there is, and that gives your ballot so much more power and weight. It can influence the election of more than one candidate and makes things far more democratic, and the system responds as a result to being more open and inclusive, more opportunities for people, and then you can imagine the policies that can come out of that through the type of governments that are elected that are forced to work together more. It's a fascinating thing. We're pushing hard for it here in Canada. We're the only country that has absolutely zero ranked choice, ranked ballots at all. We only use first-past-the-post. Um, of course, the United States is similar. It's largely a two-party system. But at least with the ranked choice, you have more options. Chris, you can tell I'd love to chat with you more about this and uh, keep spreading the word, whether it's in your country or mine or others around the world. Most other democracies, I should say, around the world already use some kind of ranked choice or proportional system. So us in the UK, we're some of the only holdouts, and uh, we're doing our best to change it. Now, coming back to quilting, you can check out a uh, blogspot website for Chris, which is quiltwrapup.blogspot.com. There's some things going back here quite a few years, but a few things from 2020 as well. Of course, under the theme of masks, too, she tells you how to make a cloth face mask, but a lot of it's about other types of quilting and crochet and things like that. So you can certainly check that out. The link is in our our notes here and on her profile. And that is Chris Crawford, our second profile for this week. And third, we have Julianne Benford, who is currently into project management, making cool videos, and creative writing. She lives in London. She says, a Londoner born and raised and has always been in love with her city. She says she wants to learn how to build a garden from almost scratch, like frugally, sustainably. But uh, her primary interest is writing. She's been a blogger for over 10 years. She's had a YouTube channel for the last four years where she mostly talks about books, primarily young adult contemporary fiction. Her day job, she's a higher education administrator, passionate about student engagement. Julianne plays the piano. She also knits and upcycles clothes. So she's really into sustainable fashion and visible mending. Hmm, I'd like to find out more about that. Ah, so, Julianne, you and I should talk because you say you're in the process of starting a podcast. Well, we can uh, help you out. We can give you some advice, at least, some of the things that we've learned. So, And we'd love to have you on this show. So uh, we'll be in touch. That's neat, too. She says, I collect books about how people choose and wear clothes. So more memoirs about clothes than fashion, the concept of the fashion and fashion industry. It's more about the choices people make. That sounds neat. She's dabbling in trying to learn French. Well, uh, on peut parler uh, ensemble, si tu veux, aussi. And uh, Mandarin Chinese. Uh, all I know about that is about ni hao and xie xie. <laughs> so check out Julianne's website. is juliannebenford.com, J-U-L-I-A-N-N-E-B-E-N-F-O-R-D.com. This is kind of her writing um, portfolio. She's got a blog. She's got a newsletter. She does also offer a couple courses that are linked over to Teachable, the website. Things like Ignite Your Passion for Reading, Fall in Love with Books. That's a free course. She has a $15 course, Start and Run a Book Club. And back on the theme of uh, clothes and, I guess, fashion, but Planning Your Work Wardrobe, Dress Without Stress is another option. 
That's kind of neat to dabble in courses. You know, I hear a lot these days about how, especially for things like side hustles and and um, passive income, if you can start a course, there's lots of, of uh, websites nowadays, Teachable and Udemy and a whole number of others that will give you the hosting and like the platform to post your course. So if you can put something together and there's a whole number of um, topics that people are interested in, it's, uh, it's a neat way to make at least a bit of money probably on the side and who knows, maybe it'll take off a little bit too. Now, here's what's really neat with Julianne right now. It's uh, We're recording this. It's October 2020. Uh, we've been locked in the coronavirus pandemic for, uh, how long has it been now? Seven months? Seven years? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen too many kind of um, cultural things or, you know, written or produced in response to life under the pandemic. Obviously, it's early. I think we're all still trying to get a grip on it. And however long it's going to last. Well, Julianne has taken that step. She wrote a book. It's called Unlucky in Lockdown, Flat Sharing in the Time of Coronavirus. You can get it. Yeah, it is free. You can download it for free. There's links through her website, but it's available on like Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles and all the rest. It's a, it's a 26,000 word novella set during the first two weeks of the UK's lockdown. Let me read the quick description of it. She says, Cora and Zandra have been flatmates for over a year, but they've never been friends. It's not been a problem before. Cora likes her peace and quiet, and Zandra's happy to leave her to it, spending most of her time partying elsewhere. But when the COVID-19 pandemic takes hold and the UK is put under lockdown, they find themselves forced into spending a lot more time together. Will they put their differences aside and learn to tolerate each other's company? Will familiarity breed further contempt? Or will they find common ground and develop a true friendship? Download the book and read it to find out. And Julianne, hey, we'd love to have you on this show for all kinds of reasons. We can chat about music. We can chat about clothing and fashion. We can certainly chat about podcasting. And I'd love to hear more about your experience of publishing a book, what it took to put that together, and some of the nuts and bolts behind the scenes. I know a lot of people here would find that very inspiring and interesting as well. So that's Julianne Benford. Again, check out her site, juliannebenford.com. And with that, three wonderful putty peep to share with you on this episode. We like to collect a few people and uh, and present a few at the same time. So we'll have more for you, certainly, in our next episode, which will be out soon. We we aim to get back to our bi-weekly schedule here. That's still the goal for the multipod. Again, it's it's great to be back. It's kind of uh, oddly familiar, you know, to be sitting here behind the microphone again. I mean, I've barely done it the last few months. And yet, on the other hand, it almost feels like I just did it, like it's old hat. So it, it comes back to you pretty quickly. I, I know a lot of us can relate to that when, you know, you, you had some kind of project or, or thing that you were really into for a long time. And then for various reasons, it kind of fell away. Now you're back into it. And it usually comes back uh, to you pretty quickly. So that's kind of what I'm feeling right now. It's nice. <laughs> Uh, we'll be out again with lots more content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any comments, suggestions about this show. And as always, we thank you for taking the time to listen. Um, We hope you're all doing healthy, of course, and uh, navigating this time as best we can. There's, you know, there's so much uncertainty in the world. Um, We do our best, certainly with this show. I think the Puttyverse is great for keeping things as positive and encouraging and comfortable safe even, but positive as possible. That's what we're all here for. And uh, we're very lucky to have this community. 
So I'll leave it at that, and we'll talk to you again soon.